Welcome, folks. It is episode 11, God versus God. Welcome back. Andrew, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that I am going to Greece later yes. on. Yes, you did. To see some of this stuff in action. Um, I booked my flight last week, so it's, nice. it's getting it's getting closer. It's coming in October. Um, normally, my policy is I, I do not travel in October just in case the Chicago Cubs make a run for the World Series. <laughs> yes. uh, this year, it's in I'm, handy once every 100 years. <laughs> right. This year, I'm feeling very comfortable taking that risk uh, and will travel freely. Uh, we'll start in Athens. So, of course, see the Acropolis and other antiquities. Uh, I'm also going to go to Crete to nice. see the birthplace of Zeus himself. The very cave where, of course, his mother Rhea hid away to give birth and be away from Cronus, who had eaten all five of his siblings. <laughs> yeah. So I get to see that in action. Um, I imagine I'll also hit some wineries out of yeah. respect to Dionysus, probably hit the beach to say hello to uh, Helios. Um, yes. and, and Poseidon. Just, and Poseidon. That's right. That's right. The sea. And hopefully I'll check in on some modern day followers of the Hellenic religion. You know, to see what all the fuss is about, how they're going to keep it yeah. real in 2022. So it should Sounds be an action-packed good. trip. Uh, I couldn't get a direct flight, so I'm going to fly uh, to Sweden on the way there. And I okay. assume in, like, the Stockholm airport, I assume there's a, some kind of shrine to Odin and Thor, maybe yeah. Loki. Well, check yeah, in on that during the layover. On the way back, I have to go through Turkey, through Istanbul. Now, as I recall, their ancient religion was sort of the latter half of Zoroastrianism where they only had two gods remaining. There was like Tengri, who represented the good in heaven, and Erlik, who represented bad in hell. That's it, just the two. So I appreciate sort of how simple and tidy that arrangement <laughs> must have been, but it would make for a very short podcast season. Yes, delved into for that. us, yeah, definitely. Yes. So I look forward to taking that trip um, once we wrap our season and, uh, and be over there enjoying what I assume will be a generous expense account supplied by God versus God Incorporated. Since of it course, is yeah. clearly a business trip. So looking forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, off. we've got a matchup uh, for this episode. It should be quite interesting. Uh, episode 11, Pan versus the Muses. Uh, so let's dig in. And as always, may the best God win. Yes. So I'll start with Pan, the God of the wild, God of nature, representative of all that is untamed. <laughs> And he is a living combination of man and beast, of course, half human, half goat. Familiar image there. Right. Uh, but Pan is associated with, with shepherds, flocks, uh, fields, groves, wooded glens, rustic music. And of course, being the god of nature also has associations with sexuality, fertility, and the season of spring. Now, as always, he does have a Roman equivalent, Faunus, also known as Fauna. But uh, I will stick to the Greco again over yeah. the Roman. Uh, mainly because it is so satisfying phonetically just to say pan pan i've yeah. been enjoying saying that all week after <laughs> after we we worked our way through you know prometheus Astrius, Aristeus, asclepius it's just really refreshingly simple just to <laughs> pan it feels really good off the tongue uh so hometown fittingly is arcadia which is a region in the central peloponnese known for being unspoiled harmonious wilderness sort of like right our Wyoming, but you know, without all the Republicans, <laughs> um, as far as an origin story goes, there's, there's no clear story. This is going to be a theme with pan. There's a lot of cross references, a lot of stories that do not okay. agree with each other. The parents out there in the to, wild it is, it is clearly, yeah. I mean, the, 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 everything about him is wild from his family tree to even just whether or not there are one or many of him as well. <laughs> okay. Um, so the parentage is very complicated. I'll, I'll try to do my best here. Some say 
his parents were Hermes and a wood nymph. Simple enough. Right. Um, others say the parents were Zeus and a nymph named Hybris. And it really would not be any tale of uncertain parentage without old Zeus involved. So clearly he's got to be in the mix somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, still others will say the parents were Apollo and a dryad, who are it's a tree nymph named Penelope. Okay. Now that Penelope is often confused with her namesake, who is the Penelope, who is the wife and queen of, of course, Odysseus, the right. eponymous hero of the Odyssey and the story of his return to her, to Queen Penelope, after the Trojan War. Other accounts have that Penelope as Pan's mother. Okay. So dueling Penelope's right. at work here. Now, that's probably my favorite version. And that version, Queen Penelope, you know, Odysseus has gone for at least 10 years. Um, and during that time, Queen Penelope has a number of suitors while he's away. Uh, 108 of them, to be exact. <laughs> yep, yep. For all of the relative sloppiness of some of the history, they're very clear on that number, 108. The head, head count, yeah. <laughs> Counting, very precise. Uh, so according to Duras of Samos, the uh, historian, the queen, in fact, had relations with all 108 suitors and then afterward gave birth to Pan as a result. <laughs> so you can imagine that conversation. She's well, it's all a little Pan. I, I can't really tell you who your father is. I can't narrow it down to one of these 108 guys <laughs> that I once dated. And you can picture Pan just kind of shrugging and saying, you know, Paternity tests aren't going to be invented for a few thousand years. I doubt you're still in touch with most of these guys anyway. Why don't, we just not. Say it was, yeah, why don't we just say it was Zeus? And Penelope said, you know, yeah, sure. If, it, so, if you'll recall, uh, Odysseus killed them all when he got back. Well, there's, there's that too, yes. Yeah. But not before they got a piece of the old queen. So out comes Pan in that version. Um, so beyond his parentage, we also got some dispute about Pan's age and, and sort of where he falls in the timeline. So most of the accounts see he's one of the most ancient gods, older than even the Olympians. And because there are stories where he is the one who gives Artemis her hunting dogs, he teaches the secret of prophecy to Apollo. So he's got to be before them in a lot of those timelines. Um, there are some historians who kind of remedy this by saying there were multiple pans. There was like an old one and a kind uh -huh. of a modern day one. So the ancient one was, this, was also the son of Cronus, the Titan. Another was the son of Zeus. They're both pans. They're both kind of in the mix. Now, even the notion of multiple pans takes multiple forms. So in one account, you sort of got both, both old and new coexisting. Um, but in a lot of accounts, you have multiple pans at once. So you've got the great, like the big pan, the major pan, surrounded by little pans. <laughs> okay, They're yeah, called right. panoskoi in the, in the Greek. So he can, at any time, he could just sort of multiply into all these little mini pans, a swarm of mini pans oh, uh, wow. that, that run around him. Now, when I heard that, I originally assumed, well, then if you fed Pan after midnight or you get a net, then the <laughs> right. little Pans start flying out. I, I think I confused that with a different story. So uh, these little Pans were reminiscent uh, of the, the satyr, which we've talked about before. That's the kind of classic half man, half goat creature, which, you know, again, leads us to that familiar image of, of, of the great Pan himself. So he has the hindquarters and the legs of the goat from roughly the waist down. Right. But he also has goat horns up top. And the rest of Pan is is, is all man. Um, it's not clear exactly where the cutoff is, where the sort of the man goat <laughs> yeah. border resides. Is it, is it a hard stop or is it <laughs> it's like a sort of a blend? Soft, yeah, kind of a Northern Ireland kind of thing. It's, you know, it's not a hard border. It's a little bit porous. Uh, whatever form he takes below the belt, wherever that line is, it seems to function pretty well because as we will hear, Pan definitely gets around. Uh, he is often pictured 
with a flute that he created himself. We'll hear a little bit about how that happened. Uh, and he named it in a clever bit of, of ancient branding, the pan flute or pan pipes. <laughs> yeah. uh, we will also learn that pan is a master brander and likes to attach his name to everything. So this was one great example of that. And, you know, ultimately pan is a minor God. So he doesn't have the kind of superpowers that we would expect from like the Olympians. Um, but he does have a number of, of special little skills. He can run very quickly without getting tired. All right. Uh, he can teleport between Earth and Mount Olympus anytime he wants. And he's known for having a great sense of humor, which is, I think, its own its own superpower. Yeah. So one of the associations that Pan had is with a goat god named Aegipan. Now, again, differing accounts. Some say Aegipan is Pan's father. Okay. Some say it's his son. And some say that the two are the same. He's just another aspect of Pan. So Pan has multiple, not just forms, but aspects. And Aegipan was one of them. Right. So the difference, Aegipan is still a god, but he's full goat. So not half man, half goat, full goat god. Okay. Now, in that telling, Aegipan is actually raised and nurtured as a child by Amalthea, who we will recall was the same one who took care of young Zeus while hidden away in okay. that south central Crete cave, the very same cave I'll be visiting in October. <laughs> right. So I will, yeah. I will confirm this firsthand to make sure that this episode is journalistically sound. <laughs> right. Um, so in this version, Aegipan and Zeus are essentially foster brothers. They're being raised together in the cave. And once Zeus comes of age, rescues his siblings from the belly of their father, Cronus, and goes to battle against the Titans in revenge, um, his old foster brother, Aegipan, comes in to help him out. And they're battling Typhon, who's this serpentine giant, one of the Titans. Zeus and Aegipan are battling this, this, this serpent. The serpent Typhon takes away Zeus's sinews, which are essentially the, the, the tendons of the arms right, and right. the legs. Like his um, ACL. Well, pretty much, yeah. But sure. the, but both the arms and and the legs, okay. um, all the sinews. Which I mean, to me, it seems like a strange, a strange battle strategy at first. But then again, if you don't have those tendons, you're just you know you're not very good on the battlefield. You're kind of flopping around. You're not going to be terribly useful. But that's right. that's where they are in the battle. But Hermes and Aegipan team up, and through their combination of, of Hermes' speed and Aegipan's I mean goat-like charm, they <laughs> managed to steal the sinews back. Um, from from Typhon. Then they fix up Zeus, good as new, and ready for battle. Which, as I understand it, was probably like the first Tommy John surgery, right? Where <laughs> yeah. Essentially, good as new, explains why Zeus had such great velocity and movement on all those thunderbolts for the rest of his career. Uh, so it really came through in the clutch. Now, Aegipan does not get away clean from the battle. He is attacked uh, by Typhon. And to get away from him, he dives into the Nile River as an escape. Now, something unusual happens when he dives in. The part of him above the water remains a goat, but the part under the water transforms into a fish. <laughs> okay. So for some reason, AG Pan becomes the first sea goat, half goat, yeah. half fish. And first of many. Well, and I was thinking, it's a good thing this is mythology because I got to wonder in the real world, how would that kind of creature really get by in, in <laughs> Darwin's survival of the fittest? And that just, that strikes me as, evolutionarily risky but right. there he is he's he's a sea goat zeus is properly tending up again he's back in the battle and the sea goat lets out this horrible screech that is so frightening it scatters all of the titans in pure terror uh andrew i assume you've heard the sound of a goat before at no, least sure just, who has you know the, the kind of quiet but when you if you heard a goat really scream like when they really let him let you have it, it it's terrifying i mean it, it, in fact i you can picture if a regular goat sounds like this. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's a regular goat. Yeah. That's a civilian goat. Picture when the <laughs> God of the Wild goat. really lets one rip. I mean, that's going to be, you can understand why the Titans would run for their lives. Right. So, yeah, I would run. That magnified by a thousand. So that gives birth to the state of uncontrollable fear, which of course gives us the origin of the term we know today as panic. Okay. It's people panic, which again, fine master sound of a brain. goat yelling. That's right. But well, a but goat God yeah. times a thousand. Yeah. So that is his strength, his ability to incite panic through this horrible goat screech. And Pan throughout his life keeps coming back to this, this angry shout as his ultimate weapon really. And he uses it for pretty much any, any purpose. <laughs> um, he will wield it when he is awakened from his favorite pastime, an afternoon nap. He'll just, he'll cause people to panic out of punning. Well, why'd you make me get up? Um, but other times he will use it when the stakes are much higher, such as during the battle of marathon uh, between the Athenians and the Persians. So that's you know, the famous this story. This is actually recorded history. That, that's right. That's correct. Yes. All right. And Pan is involved. So the best known character from that story, of course, Philippides, who is the messenger, bringing news of the battle back to Athens, running a certain 26.2 mile distance right. from Marathon to Athens to do so. But as he's running, Pan catches him and says, hey, ho, ho, buddy, hold on. Uh, you seem to be in a hurry, but uh, I am the god of the wild. So give me a minute. Quick question. Why don't they worship me in Athens? And then this is true because, you know, Pan is, is a rustic god. He is mostly worshipped outdoors. He doesn't really have conventional temples. He is he is out there in nature. Um, Philippides, is, you know, sort of stops, catches his breath, says, you know what, Pan? You're right. Our bad. We really should. You're you're pretty great. I, I got to go. But I'll tell you what. Uh, if we win this battle, the Battle of Marathon, after I finish my 26.2 mile journey, I promise that we Athenians will make that happen. You will be properly worshipped. No, seriously, I got to go. And he runs off. Now, Pan takes him at his word, believes him. The battle continues. And a bit later, in the heat of the battle, Pan shows up. He lets loose his horrifying scream. And sure enough, the bad guys, the Persians, fall into a state of panic. Right. They freak out. The Athenians win. And true to their word, the Greeks then establish a sacred precinct for Pan on the north slope of the Acropolis, where, again, I will be visiting in yes. October. Uh, to confirm the accuracy of the story right. with and, the, the and running the marathon the there as well, uh, that I cannot promise. I don't <laughs> look at the itinerary again, but uh, Check, yeah, highly, so highly doubtful. Maybe, maybe a light hike. I think I'll, I'll stick steer clear of those. Right. So we mentioned the 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 loving nature, the sort of erotic nature of Pan. He's had he's had you know as the god of nature, he's going to have a special liking for nymphs, who are these minor female nature deities. Probably the best known tale is his infatuation with a beautiful wood nymph named Syrinx, who hails from Pan's home region of Arcadia. Yeah. Syrinx is lovely. She's returning one day from the hunt. Pan says hello, begins to pay her compliments, as is his style. And Syrinx kind of knows Pan as the god of the wild, and he's known for his, you know, his, his lusty side. Yeah. Uh, but there's a problem that she, on the other hand, is known for her chastity. That's kind of her jam. So this isn't going to work. Right. So she runs off all the way to the river's edge, and she asks her sister nymphs for their assistance to help her hide. It's like, hey, help me out with this complimentary but lecherous goat man who's running after me. <laughs> so they help a sister out. Right. Nymphs then transform her into a reed, which is like one of those tall kind of grass-like plants by the river, uh, which in theory should be a really nice kind of effective camouflage. Just blend right, into the yeah. river, Pan can't find her. 
But when Pan arrives, you know, he's a god. He can sense what's happened. He, he, he knows what's going on. He won't get the beautiful wood nymph that he desires. And so he bellows out in his frustration. And because these reeds are hollow, they make this sound as his breath blows across them. Some call it a, a haunting sound. Some call it a, a plaintive melody. Um, Pan knows that Syrinx has been transformed into one of the reeds, but he's still infatuated. He can't tell which one is her. So he just grabs a few of them, cuts them into seven pieces, joins them side by side at differently gradually decreasing lengths and then forms a new musical instrument. He may, I guess, have intended originally that it was going to bear the name of his beloved nymph Syrinx, but mm -hmm. ultimately through a, another masterstroke of branding, it becomes known as the pan flute or pan pipes. Right. And from then he carries it with him at all times. Now, it's hard for me to read Pan's motivation in this case. Yes. You know, is it is it is it a heartfelt tribute to, to unrequited love? Is it a classic sort of, you know, goat man meets wood girl, doesn't get goat wood girl, turns wood girl into flute story? Maybe. I mean, on one hand, it's moving, he takes takes her with him for the rest of his days. On the other, he did just chop her up. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's going either way. Don't, it doesn't bear reading too closely. No, no. This is a, Pan is a simple being. He, he's, 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 yeah, you don't want to go too deep. In any case, he knows he cannot get what he wants, so he finds a way to let it be, if you will. So will. he's always going to be associated with this flute. Uh, of course, astute listeners to this program will recall Pan's brief appearance in episode three, where he dares to challenge the great Apollo to a music contest. And yes, you know, Pan's pretty good at the flute, but Apollo is the inventor of music. So there's no small amount of hubris going on here, as we heard. So right. remember, Pan goes first, he holds his own, but with one strike of Apollo's heavenly harp, the contest is over. And you may recall Apollo finds Pan's ears so depraved at thinking he might hold a candle to Apollo that he as a punishment for losing, turns his ears into the ears of a donkey. Right. So again, for those keeping score at home, depending when you encounter Pan, it can be full goat, half goat, half fish, the familiar half goat, half man version, which we'll call Pan Classic. <laughs> and then once Apollo has his way with him after the contest, half goat, half man, donkey ears. Very simple. Yeah, just mix it up. <laughs> uh, the story of another famous love interest, of course, Echo, another nymph, um, known for three things, great singer, great dancer, and scorning the love of any man. Right. Now, Pan is, is up for two of these three. You know, he's like, <laughs> singing, check, dancing, great. The third part, is scorning the love of any man. Would you make an exception for a goat man? And if not, can I sweeten the deal with some donkey ears or would that, does that not work? So again, two versions of the, the story of Echo. He's, he's already coming at her with a disadvantage. And the first you know, Pan is, is, you'll recall, rather rather lecherous. He's angered by this third bit of Echo scorning the love of any man. So he instructs his followers to kill her, which they do. They tear Echo to pieces and scatter her all over the earth. Okay. Now, in this first story, Gaia, who, of course, is the primordial mother earth goddess, takes on the pieces of Echo into herself, into the earth. And from then on, the voice of Echo repeats back the last words of others, no matter where they roam. And, of course, that's where okay. we get the echo we know, but there is a second alternative ending that we get from Ovid's Metamorphosis. In that one, Echo is just having a chat with our beloved guest star, Hera. All right. Now, Hera, as you can expect, is very busy spying on a potential lover of her husband, Zeus, which, as we all know, could be its own full-time job. That's right. pretty much what she does. Pretty much was, yeah. 
She's trying to do her spying. Uh, Echo chats her up and just won't stop. Doesn't take the cues. Uh, she keeps talking, distracting Hera from her spycraft. And eventually Hera just gets fed up and says, you know, given her predilection for violence and vengeance, says, casts a curse on Echo and deprives her of speech entirely. With one exception, she can only repeat the last words of another. Right. So she's got this curse. And despite earlier scorning the love of men, she, she does find love. She falls in love with Narcissus, who is, of course, the hunter known for his great beauty. Right. She wants to profess her love for him, um, but of course she can't because of, of Hera's curse. Um, so she's only able to repeat the words of others, and Narcissus isn't saying anything. He's just he's in his own world. She follows him down to a pool. He ends up falling hopelessly in love with his own reflection, says nothing, and eventually just turns into a Narcissus flower. Now, Echo wastes away over time, but her voice, of course, remains in caves and such places, doomed to repeat the last thing she hears and nothing else. So in a way, that second version is somehow even sadder than the first yes. one where she gets torn apart, being trapped in silence with the world's first narcissist, stuck for life with a, a simple young creature who can only gaze at himself endlessly at his own face. So to me, that's also probably witnessing the origin of TikTok, I think, <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah. Uh, there's a third nymph that, that Pan is known to fall for named Pities. Like the other two, she lacks interest in him. Um, in order to escape him, turns herself into a pine tree. Now, at this point, learning this, I was hoping that just as Pan turned Syrinx from a reed into a flute, he would then turn Pities from a pine tree into one of those little pine tree-shaped air fresheners that have <laughs> cabs on the, <laughs> the rear view mirror. Right. Um, doesn't happen. She remains yeah. a pine tree. Pan moves on. It's a very short story. Not much <laughs> else to it. Uh, you know, a couple of tidbits about the sort of the erotic life of, of Pan. I mentioned he's known for sexual prowess. We hear stories of him getting turned down a lot, but he, right. he he was able to be much luckier in other times. And there are statues of him, of him having much, much better fortune. Um, sadly, most of the, many of the statues contain a prominent phallus, which kind of takes us back to some previous conversations. Yeah. Um, so as if, you know, all the man goat donkey stuff isn't distracting enough. You've also got this in the mix. Um, <laughs> There's also a legend that Pan was the one who taught shepherds how to pleasure themselves originally, <laughs> which, you know, given the nature of that occupation, an especially important skill. So I'm sure the shepherds still hold him in high regard for that okay. lesson. Uh, there's also, in the old days, his name was part of a term that was used to often shame women who would have multiple partners. They would call them pan girls as kind of a taunt. Okay. Uh, that is a forerunner to today's designation of pansexual, which is one of many available sexual identities at your disposal, right. which uh, in contrast is widely celebrated. So he's turned that around from, from, from the scorn of a pan girl to the pride and celebration of being pansexual. How right. many things have changed. Uh, but there is a final chapter to this that that's, it's pretty deep and kind of difficult to grasp, but it, it, it's important to bring up. So, Unlike all the other gods in contention for this competition on God versus God, there is a possibility that Pan may be dead. Oh, no. So it's a bit of controversy, but the Greek right. historian Plutarch claims that Pan is the only Greek god who actually dies. And the story is this. So during the reign of Tiberius, and we're talking AD 14 to 37, now there's a sailor named Thamus who was heading to Italy by way of Paxi, a Greek island, and he hears this divine voice across the salt water. The voice says, when you reach Pelotes, take care to proclaim that the great god Pan is dead. And Thamus is 
understandably taken aback by this, but he does relay the message. And everybody who hears it groans and laments this terrible news. I mean, for all of his quirks and peccadilloes, you know, Pan has become something of, of a fan favorite over the years. And people are right. really distraught to hear that he would have met his demise. Uh, flash forward several centuries. Then by the 16th century, the French scholar Rabelais has this revelation that this announcement was not about Pan at all, but it was a announcement of the death of Jesus Christ. Now, you look at the dates of the reign of Tiberius, AD 14 right. to 37, the dates check out, the timing's there. He claims that in Greek, the word pan, of course, and the word all are essentially the same. So to early Christians, according to Rabelais, Christ was their everything, and therefore our everything is dead, was what the messenger was truly saying. Okay. So seemed like pan, it was actually about Jesus. It lost in translation. <laughs> now, later on, the theologian G.K. Chesterton, I think, kind of puts this into perspective, considers the death of Pan to be metaphorical, saying this is this marks the end of mythology, the beginning of Christian theology. It's the changing of the guard. It's a story that says the old gods are going away, and the new Christian moment is beginning. So this is where we sit. Is the death of Pan literally true? Is it merely metaphorical? Is it perhaps both? I think it remains an unsolved mystery. Right, yeah, a, uh, a sort of religious cold case well, between the eras. Yeah, if, if he wins, then I guess we'll, well, we'll, we'll find. We'll it's find not. Out. De- it's not definitive, but it's right. it's definitely a, it's a gray area. So, you know, we won't solve that in this episode. But for yeah. me, as long as pan pipes can still be heard, as long as echoes will still echo, as long as people still panic when goats scream, and <laughs> will forever remain alive in our hearts. And that's Pan, God of the Wild. All right. That is excellent. There you have it. Um, We will take a break. Yeah. But before we do, we're going to hear from the makers of another podcast, something called Battle Royale, where they go and talk about rank each of the French monarchs. So let's hear a quick word from them. And we'll be back on the other side after this. All right. Bonjour and bienvenue to the podcast you are currently listening to. Je m'appelle Ben Clark and I host the podcast Battle Royale, where my best friend Eliza and I pass judgment on all the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Those who we do not deem worthy will be sent to the guillotine. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And join us on our macabre adventure from the Dark Ages to the French Revolution and help us decide who's ahead and who's headless at Battle Royale French Monarchs. That's Battle Royale colon French Monarchs, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me now, you muses who have your homes on Olympus, for you who are goddesses are there, and you know all things. And we have heard only the rumor, and know nothing. Who are you, O muses and goddesses of the arts? So, that's an adaptation of Homer's invocation to the muses in Book 2 of the Iliad. Because, of course, I do have the muses, goddesses of the arts, for this episode. And what better way to start off with an episode on the muses than an invocation of the muses, right? It's great. I was very impressed. I, unexpected, but uh, entirely yeah. fitting. Yeah. A, a little bit meta, but, you know. Very much so. And appreciate it. So, um, and the muses were almost invariably invoked 
by the ancient poets at the beginning of their works playwrights usually as well mm-hmm. again they, they didn't have podcasting back then they sadly lacked the technology but <laughs> if they did have it undoubtedly they, they would have also ancient podcasters invoked the muses before every episode so maybe we've missed that opportunity but i was gonna say we thought of this uh 11 episodes <laughs> ago that could have been quite an improvement but yeah, yeah good to know now something. all right so um in terms of etymology uh the muses could mean to bring to mind hmm. or uh could be derived from the same root as mountain uh, because they were often thought to originate on different mountains uh, kind of in their uh, beginning uh, days so and then in terms of the Romans the muse they just use muses so we just get a stick with a one which is good it makes it nice clean and simple keep it simple yeah Uh, but in any case there were also uh, similar to some degree like pan uh, a couple generations of the muses, but here we are talking about uh, actual generations. You have the Titan muses and the Olympian muses. Mm. Uh, for the most part, we're just going to concern ourselves with the nine Olympian muses. Uh, but as I said, these were literal generations here because one of the there were three Titan muses, and one of them, Nimosine, who's the goddess of memory, was the mother of the muses. So I will take this from. Hesiod's Theogony, and he says, They are Olympian muses, daughters of the Aegis-bearing Zeus. Their mother, who mated with him, was Nemesine. Which, again, how that works with the mating. So, um, and then then Hesiod says, They were born to be the forgetting of misfortunes, the cessation of worries. For nine nights did Zeus, the planner, lie with their mother, when a year was up, she gave birth to nine daughters, all like-minded, who have a song on their minds and in their hearts. So, he lies with uh, Nimesine for nine nights in a row, which for Zeus is kind of a long-term deal. I was going to say, yeah, that's uh, that's practically a so long-term that, that, relationship for him. It's over yeah. a week. Yes, that's <laughs> so, be a record. Yeah, so, um, and he wooed her apparently in a fairly straightforward manner. He may have appeared as a shepherd, but he mm. was in some sort of humanoid form. Um, And because he was with her for nine nights, she was pregnant with the nine muses, uh, who were born as non-uplets. I mean, which is just biology. It's just just (laughs) science at work here. Nothing we can do about it. That's every night is, yeah, a different child. That's how that works. I'm pretty pretty, pretty sure. So um, now I believe from from what I read, this was a pre-Hera relationship. Mm. So the, the wrath element's muted. She will come back and make some sort of appearance but I, I certainly hope so uh it doesn't follow them at least during their childhood mm-hmm. so and we don't get too much about their childhood but there is an interesting story about the effect of their arrival in the world of mortals and this one comes actually from plato though he attributes it to to socrates as he, as he often does um but according to plato before the muses were born there was no music you know, maybe occasionally somebody accidentally banged a couple rocks together, a pleasing rhythm. Sure. Uh, or made a fun sound blowing on a reed, but they could never <laughs> reproduce it and just went insane trying. Right. Uh, there was no poetry, uh, mm. not even dirty limericks. No. <laughs> Sad time to be alive. Yeah. yeah there, there, there was no dancing. There were not even Southern Baptist <laughs> ministers to tell you not to dance because... There was no dancing. It was obviated. No need. Yeah. Yep. No Kevin Bacon. Nothing. <laughs> but um, 
So take this from Plato, you know, so very smart guy. So this very much so a pretty good seal of approval on this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he says, when the muses came and song appeared, the mortals were ravished with delight and singing always never thought of eating and drinking until at last in their forgetfulness, they died. What? (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, they're just so happy and obsessed. You know, they've been so bored. There's, sure. there's no TV. There's no right. video games. No there's podcast. No, yeah, you know, no songs, no stories, and and so they're just so excited by this that they they go crazy with music and dance, and die probably of a dehydration because obviously sure. that would have got them before the, the yeah, starvation. Yeah, the electrolytes in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Well. but but the muses, uh, you know, don't abandon their followers. They they transform their devotees into grasshoppers. <laughs> and, and so Plato tells us, and now they live again in the grasshoppers. And in this return, the muses make with them. They neither hunger nor thirst, but from the hour of their birth are always singing and never eating or drinking. And when they die, they go and inform the muses in heaven who honors them on earth. So Grasshoppers. Yes, yeah, so, so they're grasshoppers. Grasshoppers, according to Plato, uh, do not eat or drink. So, okay. Yeah. You know, again, I, we're not scientists. We'll have to maybe ask one of our scientist listeners <laughs> that can confirm him. Plato's report on this. Uh, how, how accurate he got? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to suspect Plato may have been a little stronger in philosophy than he was in the uh, hard sciences. <laughs> yeah, he, he was not. His PhD was not in biology, apparently. <laughs> no. So, uh, but then also the crickets are watching you, and they're you know who's who's uh, paying homage to the muses, who's giving them their proper yeah. due. Yeah, uh, and he will. They will report on you. So yes. just just know that when you hear them, <laughs> they got eyes on you. Yep. Yeah, the, <laughs> they're, they're not just playing; they're, they're watching you too. Uh, so, the nine muses are collectively, as I said, the patrons of art and learning, and they're pictured as nine beautiful, elegant, sophisticated young women, and in many ways were held up as the ideal of ancient Greek womanhood. Hmm. Um, and they each individually have their own uh, specialty, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and carry their own symbol of their specialty in, in most of their art depictions. And I assume just whenever they would go, go anywhere, they would carry those around with them. Um, so I'm going to give you their uh, names and kind of areas of interest, uh, but not going to be a test on this, but some okay. of these guys will yeah, come. That was come. my next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, some of them will come back up later. So. First is Calliope, who was the leader of the muses, sure. and she was the muse of epic poetry and eloquence. Mm-hmm. Then you have Cleo, who was the muse of history, subject close to our hearts. Indeed, yeah. Uh, and then Erato, who was the muse of romantic poetry. Euterpe, who was the muse of musical performance. And there were two theater muses. Melipomene, who was the muse of tragic theater. Okay. And... Tulia, who is the muse of comedies. So they right. had that kind of split. Yep. Then we have Polyhymnia, who was the muse of lyric poetry, which is essentially uh, song lyrics, uh, poetry that was performed with a lyre. Uh, Terpsichore, who was the muse of dance. And finally, the youngest, Urania, who was the muse of astronomy. So mm-hmm. that 
that seems like an outlier, but okay. Yeah, yeah. She, she, she's she's <laughs> she, she's a little is a little bit of the outlier, a little bit of of maybe the the uh, the more scholarly, uh, quieter one. But you know, so and I'll come back to some of the muses individually, but they did have kind of a group uh, jobs around mm-hmm. Olympus. They were educators. We saw that in episode eight with Aristeus. Right. Uh, they both educated him and, and found him a wife. Um, they did plenty of wedding gigs uh, with their brother and, uh, should we say, companion Apollo, who was their half-brother. Yeah. Um, they performed at the wedding of Cadmus and Harmonia, mm-hmm. Peleus and uh, the nymph Thetis, as well as Cupid and Psyche. Uh, Classic, yeah. Episode two, I believe. Yep, that's right. And uh, they also performed at funerals, so they, you know, go the whole gamut. Had some range, uh, yeah. Yeah, they break out the sad songs. They performed at many <laughs> heroes' fu- funerals, uh, including a couple of their own sons, which I'll talk about, mm-hmm. and also the funeral of Achilles, uh, which was a big, you know, big event in the mythological world. And at that funeral, uh, the leader of the Muses, Calliope, gives a little advice to the mortal nymph Thetis, who, who is, of course, the mother of Achilles. And we get a little hint of that um, from a poem, the, the Fall of Troy. And this is Calliope speaking to Thetis. So uh, she says, From lamentation, Thetis, now forbear, and do not in your frenzy of your grief provoke the wrath of Zeus. Gods ought not anguish their grief to vex their souls. Therefore, make an end to your sorrow-stricken wail for your son. Let your soul not be crushed by dark grief, nor should you lament like those frail mortal women. Hmm. So, you know, a little bit of an edge to that advice. I would say so, yeah. That's yeah, not exactly, like, uh, you know, you comforting. Know, yeah, to paraphrase it, yes, it's your son's funeral, <laughs> Thetis, but, you know, pull yourself together. Yeah. Zeus has already given you the stink eye, so <laughs> <laughs> button it up. You know, so, you know, a little, little bit tough advice. No kidding. Um, tough love. But again, you know, if one looks into the myths of the muses, uh, you find their areas of patronage are cultural, cultured, and genteel, but they're still Olympians, mm-hmm. uh, still goddesses, and they demand their due, and not above giving a little wrath when they don't get it. <laughs> sure. So, uh, most famous case of this is there were kind of a Macedonia's Got Talent uh, singing battle. <laughs> Uh, this group called the Pierides, who were nine Macedonian princesses, had kind of their own girl group, mm-hmm. and a uh, little hubris despair. So the, the <laughs> Macedonian princesses challenge the muses to a singing contest, uh, these Pierides, and they said, well, if we win, we get your compound on Mount Helicon, oh. which is like their second home, home away from Olympus. And muses, if you win, we will make sure that uh, your... Worship will spread in Macedonia. Okay. Kind of give, give you Macedonia. So the muses are insulted by this, but they still feel obliged to accept the challenge. <laughs> so they recruit some mimps to to judge the contest, and they start off with uh, solo singers. And the Pierides nominate one of their singers who performs a song about the war with the giants, mocking the Olympians for running from Typhon oh. to Egypt. So crossover. Recall, yeah, a little crossover there, which which was something that happened in mythological, but you know, it's kind of bad form to talk about it. You yeah, know, especially they, in front of this crowd, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh 
the muses then nominate Calliope, and she sings a song about the abduction of Persephone by Hades, which apparently is perfectly acceptable to sing about. Sure. Um, and then, then there's a group stage. So that, that was the solos, and they go into the group stage, and you know the literal and metaphorical volume gets turned up here in this phase. Uh, so again, the challengers go first, but after that first impious solo performance, when they try to sing, all of creation just goes dark, and no one even listens to their performance because the creation is just so offended uh, by their first song. Wow. So not even and, like a power outage. That is just everything in creation goes yes, dark. Yes. Like uh, the entire universe has kind of got its fingers in the ears going yeah. la, 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 la. Yeah. <laughs> not listening. No. Um, and then it's the muses' turn. And when they sing, the heavens, the stars, the oceans, and the rivers all stand still to listen. And Mount Helicon, where they're standing, rises up even further up into the sky, powered and enraptured by the beauty of their song, until Apollo has to send Pegasus <laughs> up to the top to kind of give a little hoof slap to the mountain. <laughs> To slap it out of its reverie and stop <laughs> rising so high into the sky. So that is that is quite a crowd response, I'll say. Yes, it, it is. And so the nymphs judging this uh, name the muses as the winners. Yes, uh, as, as you might expect. But what we would not expect is that the Pierides then uh, start insulting the muses and calling into question uh, this win, and they you know start talking about halting the heist or something. I don't know what they got lost in translation, uh, but just some general sore losership yes. on their part. Uh, so for this dual offenses of the hubristic challenge and the insults, that's, that's too much for the muses. Uh, and they pass the sentence, but then as they're passing the sentence on the purities, they laugh and they ridicule those threatening words. But, as they're trying to speak and attack the muses uh, and making a great clamor, they saw feathers spring from under their nails, plumage cover their arms, and each one saw the other's mouth harden into a solid beak. Yeah. And then as they beat their breasts in sorrow and agitation, they fly up into the air and realize that they've been turned into magpies. Yes. You Who knew are, it was are, not going to end well. Yep. Yes. Who are birds who who are famously do not have a, a beautiful voice or song. So no, quite to the contrary. Yeah. Yes, and then there's another instance where they're challenged. Uh, this time by a bard named Thamorus, who challenged the muses, and he decides that well, if I win, I get to sleep with all nine of the muses. Okay, and uh, and if I lose, you can take whatever you want from me. I say okay, fine, right. uh, and you know, and so Thamorus. It was kind of interesting character because he had become the king of the Scythians, who are uh, a non-Greek group, you know, experiencing barbarism. Mm. And uh, <laughs> even though uh, he's not a Scythian, he's just so good at music, they made him king. So, you know, after that, he, he's feeling pretty hubristic. Um, but he challenges them, and of course the muses win, and then they deprive him of his eyes and his voice, and his memory. He did so. say everything. So. <laughs> he did say yeah. anything. Yeah, Open-ended. That's a problem. Uh, he didn't probably not expect him to be quite so creative. He thought, you know, maybe my horse, but 
They went a little further than that. So oh my goodness, um, you really don't want to challenge these these goddesses to a singing contest. No, uh, no matter who you are, because we have one more. People keep doing it, and yep. this is the sirens who are themselves famously beguiling singers in their yes. own right. Right, and they were actually daughters of Melipomene, who was the muse of tragedies. And, you know, that right there kind of doesn't bode that well for you when your no. mother is the the muse of tragedies. Some uh, heavy so, foreshadowing happening there, yeah. A little bit. So a little backstory on the sirens. You know, they grow up on Mount Olympus um, and muses other home, Mount Helicon. Uh, and then eventually they become companions to Persephone. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were with Persephone on the fateful day where Hades um, abducted her. And you may recall from episode two that they were given wings then by Demeter in order to help her in her search uh, for Persephone. Right. So then sometime after this, this is where Hera comes back in, and she's the one that convinces the sirens that it'd be a good idea to challenge the muses uh, to a singing contest. (laughs) And Hera would never steer anybody wrong. (laughs) Yeah, no. Just some good, solid advice there. (laughs) So they do it, and of course, they lose uh, to the muses, of course. And when the muses win, this time their punishment is they go and pluck the feathers out of the siren's wings and then use those those feathers to make crowns for themselves to wear around. Harsh. Yes, that one was very harsh. And then the sirens, in their despair... Uh, take up residence on some rocks off the coast of the Italian peninsula. Yes. Where they begin to lure sailors to their deaths with their, their song. Famously. Of course, eventually uh, Odysseus. Yep. Uh, though he resists uh, by tying himself to the mast of his ship. <laughs> yes. So Melipomene, maybe not mother of the year or millennium. No. <laughs> Although it does give you a whole other dimension knowing that Odysseus is showing such restraint tying himself to the ship while back home queen penelope is having 108 suitors yes yes no. he, yeah he he doesn't restrain <laughs> himself in many other ways I was gonna say, he's, he doesn't have exactly a clean slate either so that's fair enough yes uh so calliope has a couple of other has a couple of children as well um and she avoids defeathering any of them happily but <laughs> they still don't end up too well uh so either with Apollo or the mortal hero Oeger, uh, Calliope had the son Orpheus. Hmm. Well, and speaking of musicians, is, yeah. Yeah, he is, of course, the famed uh, singer and lyre player uh, who was so talented at singing that his singing would move stones and charm wild animals. Hmm. Uh, he has a whole story we're not going to get too far into. But, you know, eventually he travels in and out of the underworld. Yes. Only to be torn apart as we heard, I believe, in episode one yeah. by some over-enthused uh, Bacchanids. Yep. Um, and Calliope and her sisters end up gathering up his pieces and, and singing a sad, but we assume tasteful and not <laughs> too bewailing song right. in his honor. And she had another son uh, that we have come across before, her son Linus. Mm. Oh, yeah. Just in episode eight, who was... <laughs> the music teacher. Music teacher, and it was also the personification of the lamentation song. 
Oh, I did not is, know that. Is how his, yes, his name works out. And that, again, is a little bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> Maybe think twice about naming your, your kid Linus, if you know that. Um, <laughs> and he, of course, became a famous ancient musician. Um, and he's also credited with bringing the alphabet to the Greeks before eventually becoming an overly strict music teacher who was beaten with his own instrument, I believe. Yes, by Hercules. Yes. Yes. So, so I, I don't want to get the impression that it's all tragic deaths and, <laughs> and violent singing contests uh, for the muses. Uh, the god of weddings, Hymenaeus, was the son of one of the muses, maybe uh, Terpsichore or maybe Cleo, a little unclear, uh, with the father being Apollo. Uh, and his job was to attend and bless weddings and uh, the wedding song. Um, and of course, they were companions uh, with their brother Apollo, mm -hmm. sometimes referred to as the leader of the muses. And they would, you know, go to celebrations at Delphi. He would come over to their place at Mount Helicon. Mm -hmm. uh, they would go perform at weddings together. Sometimes the muses would judge his contests that ended in violent retribution. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I imagine he had an equally undefeated record that yes. they did. Yes. Yeah, especially when, when they happen to be judging. <laughs> but no one ever called that. So, um, you know, sometimes they're in the company of Aphrodite or the Charities, uh, you know, delighting in dance and music. And finally, finally, as I said, they were invoked by the poets and believed to inspire and aid poets, musicians, and actors in their craft. Um, and probably no one is more of a muse stan then Hesiod, who is the author of the Theogony, which is literally like the genealogy of the gods mm -hmm. and a background for a lot of what we've discussed uh, in this season. So That's right. Hesiod was very explicit in his claim that the muses directly informed his work. Mm. Uh, and he says the muses go around at night over the mountains singing a song about all of the gods and name checks a bunch of gods <laughs> uh who you know many of whom we've talked about um and he says that he himself was just a shepherd in the valley of mount below mount helicon and the muses came to him directly to teach him the theogony and he quotes them in that poem um and they this is a quote from them. Kind of starts off with a little shade for shepherds. It says, <laughs> "Shepherds camping in the field, base objects of reproach, mere bellies. <laughs> we know how to say many deceptive things that look like genuine things, but we also know how, whenever we wish it, to proclaim things that are true." Mm. So, again, they insult the shepherds, and then says, "You know, we know how to lie really well, but yep. this time, cross our hearts." I'm going to tell you something true. And they gave Hesiod, uh, he says, they gave him a godlike voice, and they teach him the gene genealogy of the gods. And then Hesiod talks about the role of the muses, because he says, I'm going to start off with the muses since they taught me this song. Sure. Um, and he says, there's an ongoing festival on Olympus and the role with mortals. So this is from Hesiod. He says, For when someone has sorrow in his heart and is beset by new worries and is distressed, 
when the singer and attendant of the muses sings the glory of men who came before and the blessed gods who abide in olympus right away such a man forgets his troubled thoughts and he cares no longer his cares he no longer remembers quickly the gifts of the goddesses turn him away from these sorry things so you know that as presented by hesiod that is the role of the muses to to help us forget our cares and worries uh at least for a while so that's what we have for the muses they're candidates to educate us to bring us together through art and maybe if not save this troubled world to make us forget about all of its troubles at least for a little bit maybe like a certain podcast oh my goodness bringing it all back around yes very nice very nice yeah, I mean, it's a little daunting that the first time that they make people forget about their troubles, it just strikes them dead <laughs> until they come back as, as grasshoppers. But you, know, yes. hey, yeah, you got to start somewhere. It's a it's a rough draft. Right. It's a it's a first first trial. Yeah, that was that was the first trial. Yeah, yeah, the beta. Look at him now. Very nice. All right, that's All right. a. Once again, you have taught me stories that I've never heard <laughs> and, and uh, unveiled a whole new level of insight. So very well done. Excellent. Glad to hear. It. All right. Well, let's gather up our strength and prepare for our. Five categories to decide who gets the golden goat this week and qualifies for our big finale at the end of this season. Right back after this. Here we go. Okay, we are back, and it is time for our judging round. We have five rounds, and they all start off with Immortal Combat. And I will take it uh, to begin with. And so clearly physical combat was not not really a specialty (laughs) of the muses. Uh, Now, musical combat was. Theatrical stage combat? I mean, they they could have covered that for sure. Yeah, astronomy uh, (laughs) contests, uh, you know, trivia nights. All right. those, Those kind of things. But this is, of course, a physical confrontation. Yes. Uh, and who would win? Uh, and, you know, they're not in the, the giants, the war with the giants. They don't, they don't do anything there. Um, but, you know, ripping the feathers off the wings of a couple minor deities, they, they could do that. That's it shows violent. a tinge of darkness. I mean, yes, yeah, they, they've got it, it in them. Uh, you know, it was nine on three, but again, <laughs> there's strength in having nine of them. Yep. And there's certain, you know, I don't question their ability to to participate as much as some other gods. So that right, that shows right. something, especially when that was uh, their nieces or daughter. Yeah, so they, they're <laughs> even willing to show some violence in in essentially what is a family reunion. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so there's an, another story of them causing physical pain to someone, and uh, this is when a man named Perennius. Uh, who was kind of a warlord of some sort. So the muses are walking along and there's a big storm and they take shelter in his castle. And uh, when the storm is over, he tries to lock the muses in uh, to his castle. And the the poem says that they take wing. And I, I believe this was supposed to be that, that they turn themselves into bird. And, and he says, whichever way they go, he will follow. So, to follow them, he jumps off the top of his castle and falls to his death. Oh, that's a that's a big strategic mistake, right there. Yeah. <laughs> didn't yeah. think that one through. You didn't. Yeah, I don't know how much credit you can give them <laughs> for this. 
Uh, he kind of beat himself on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Your your opponent had a certain level of cognition that was was lacking <laughs> in that one, but you know. But we do find out that they can fly, so that they do have that in, that in there. Yeah. Um. And then there's the slightly odd story uh, that comes out of kind of a, a love poem, uh, one that the muses at one point tie up Eros, mm. uh, the god of love, uh, with some flowers, and they bring him over to the goddess Calice, who is the goddess of beauty. Mm. And uh, now Aphrodite desperately tries to ransom uh, her son, get him back, but after Eros is released he has become the willing servant of beauty and they say he will forevermore be this that is why love is the slave to beauty because of this. Uh, yes. i don't know that that is you know they may have tied tied up eros which semi willingly yeah so i don't know yeah. how much that gets them but uh you know i had to look for some stuff but <laughs> uh you know they're not afraid to you know physically restrain a, a chubby toddler that's which that, that that says something that's right yeah so all right, uh, I heard some stuff about Pam. Yeah, want to summarize. Yeah, and, and and I think there's 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 some good ones there. You know, the horrible screech that helped <laughs> Zeus defeat Typhon and ultimately the Titans. Of course, that's the the main weapon. Yeah. Um, we've discussed how off putting that goat scream is. You know, at go at godlike levels, you can only imagine what it would sound like. So that that's a, that sense of panic that he was able to inspire. Obviously, in high stakes situations, helping the Athenians defeat the Persians at Marathon, you can win a war that way. So right. that's, that's a, a whole major. Army. Yeah. Um, now that again, you know, as to his willingness to use that weapon, the fact that he will use it if somebody wakes him up from his afternoon nap <laughs> suggests a broad range of applications. So clearly, right. not afraid to use that weapon. Um, also, remember, I was going to say, you know, thinking because there are nine muses, theoretically, this would be nine on one. But remember. Pan can manifest himself into a swarm right. of mini pans, could be which could be disorienting to any type of in any kind of fight. So we heard the goat the goat screaming before. Imagine, if you will. In fact, don't imagine. Listen to it right now. <laughs> the sound of not one but a swarm of goats all screaming at once, and it sounds a little something like this. <laughs> now, I don't know about yeah. you, but I could not fight any kind of one on one. No, I, I, I can barely sound. concentrate. <laughs> as, no, it's so it's a, it's a little off-putting right so he's got he's got the strength in numbers he's got the mini pans he's got yeah. the sense of panic um and it, you know if you and, add to that yes the, the the muses can can fly but but you know pan can also run really fast for a long time yeah. without getting tired um yes they can sing but he's got a great sense of humor so he could always you know do a little stand-up to kind of distract from <laughs> the theatrical aspect of it I think all those are pretty good for Pan yeah. uh, in terms of having that rough edge to him. Of course, you have to acknowledge the downside. He may also be dead, <laughs> which this again, is a great yeah. area. Big question. Gonna, mark. I think, I think we're going to have to go for most of these, at least on the assumption that, that, that he, he's, <laughs> that he is alive. Um, I think so. I think so. We'll, we'll, we'll stick to the metaphorical you know, translation to that. Right. Consider and, him still on the bench. And again, if, if the battle happens for any reason to be at water, he, he has the mergoat version of himself. He does. Well, that's a, that's an excellent point because he does, you know, the ability to manifest in all these different forms at a pinch, theoretically at his will. Right. So, yes, he can move it to the sea if need be as a sea goat. So I think given all that range of motion and the range of weapons and, and, and willingness to use them, I think I have to give Pan the edge on this one. Yeah, I, I, th I think that, you know, if if the the call can defeat Typhon, I, probably the muses aren't. I, I think are, yeah. are not going to stand up to it. No. So, uh, I just, as long as he doesn't 
turn into anything that has has wings, in which case you might be in some trouble. That's true. But remember, you can run really fast. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I just I think we're, we're both both going for Pan. So it is one nothing to All Pan, right. and that brings us to our second round, which is curriculum deity. And this is who would you rather be? Who would you rather follow? And I'm gonna let you uh, start this one off. Yeah. So this is an interesting one. You know, in terms of being Pan, I mean, he had a really chill life, right? He's just enjoying the outdoors, playing his his pipes, chasing after nymphs, taking afternoon <laughs> naps. I mean, on surface, it sounds pretty great. Right. Plus, he's funny, so he's kind of the life of the party. Uh, he was able to brand everything he touched, from the Pan pipes to the Pan girls to the Panic. So. I share a similar a certain kinship with him because he shares my profession in a certain way. Um, so, so far so good. Sounds pretty appealing as a guy to be. Then again, he is occasionally lecherous as we've heard. Yep. He does get his followers to kill echo. You know, yep. there's, there's a strike against it there, but you know, then again, these days directing a mob to cause deadly chaos still doesn't get you prosecuted. You know, in this day and <laughs> no, age. So maybe he gets away with that. Um, I'm not sure I'd be crazy about the part about being part goat. I don't know if I'd want to, to to have that as part of my existence, but you know, you never know. You never, you won't know a man until you've walked a mile right. in his, his hooves or whatever. Um, and as far as the notion of multiplying yourself into miniature forms, that sounds kind of cool at first. Um, but when you think about it for a minute, that's kind of how I think about parenting. So I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know. It's not, I can not your jam. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, uh, so some pros and cons to, to, to being pan as far as following you know, as I mentioned, he's a rustic god, so he's not worshipped in your kind of traditionally built edifices. Rather, he's got these these natural settings, these grottos and and caves. Thanks to the Battle of Marathon, his heroism there, he's got the grotto on the north slope of the Acropolis. I'll be checking that out. Um, they did have an annual sacrifice to him once they established that grotto. I don't know if that's still the case, uh, so I will check it out when I'm there. <laughs> yeah. See what the current uh, burnt offering policy is. If it's still in the mix, I might have to just throw one in just for old times' right. sake. Um, did they sacrifice goats or no? I did that. <laughs> that, I for both. It. that was not clear. I, I had the same question. And I, I that, that seems like it could be a little too close to home. I don't think you want to do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, there are others. You know, there's, there's, they're, they're all known as the Cave of Pan because, again, branding. Yeah. Um, there's a Temple of Pan at the Nader River Gorge in southwestern Peloponnese, the ruins of which actually do survive to this day. Uh, I cannot make it there. I don't have quite have time. Uh, there's a Temple of Pan at the Apollonopolis Magna in ancient Egypt. I will also have to skip that one. Uh, but really, worshiping him is this sort of movable feast. It's really less about being in a place at a time. It's more of this roaming party. He's followed by his reverent retinue. There's music, plenty of good tunes. Everyone's having a good time. So the worshiping part sounds pretty good. It doesn't have this sort okay. of large-scale recurring party that you get from some of the major gods. But in right. terms of a roaming outdoor sort of traveling festival, there's an appeal to that. So okay. pretty good. Yeah. All right. Interesting. All right, so so obviously some some highs and lows uh, for for the muses uh, in terms of being them. Uh, you know, for the most part, they spend their lives you know enjoying songs, and dances, at feasts, weddings. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is. We we covered a lot of the lows, but really for the most part, they're spending their time uh, hanging out with Apollo, playing jams, you yeah. know, uh, singing songs, uh, hang out with some artists sometimes. Sure. You know. Yep, uh, poets go to the theater. They do have their tragedies, as as we discussed with Orpheus, Linus. Um, they've got two homes. Yeah, uh, nice. they got the the Olympus one, and then the one on Mount Helicon, so they can kind of get away from that hubbub of of Olympus. Um, 
you know, and they, they participate in the festival of the gods on Olympus, and then they can go out on their own on Mount Helgon. In terms of worship, uh, again, so Mount Helicon was actually the, the center of their worship uh, in the ancient world, and there was a springtime festival um, that was said to give special inspiration to poets. Hmm. And at this festival, which is held every fifth year in the valley below Mount Helicon, uh, known as the Valley of the Muses, mm-hmm. they had a nearby town of Thespi, which is where we get the term Thespian. And yes. they, they were the ones who put on this festival. And it was an art and, arts and musical festival, as as you may imagine. Uh, and there are still the remains there of uh, their open-air sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so, And their temples, and speaking of branding, by the way, were, were called Museons. Uh, and they were generally uh, dedicated, places dedicated to the study of the arts and learning, uh, including Plato's Academy and mm. uh, the library at Alexandria. Oh, wow. And it is the root of the modern word museum. Museum. Very good. It comes from yeah. places to worship the muses. So, sure. You know, that's, it's inter- it's, this is it's an interesting one. We actually both have, you know, not too bad in, in, in many ways. Um, yeah. Sure, the muses have a little bit of anger issues, and and <laughs> and, and Pan has, has a little bit of lechery issues. Yes, yes. <laughs> so n- neither neither has quite clean hands. Uh, but you know, I guess given given my self conception as a sophisticated man, yes, <laughs> I'm going to go and with richly deserved. But yes, <laughs> I'm going to go with the muses uh, here. Just uh, kind of fits. Yeah, it's my self conception in many ways. I, I I can get behind that, and I think because there is such overlap with good tunes, being you know being in kind of laid back environs, right. uh, places of joy, I I am going to pick the muses as well. And I will say what puts it over the edge is their lack of a partial goat body. <laughs> that, I think there's you got to factor that in. Entirely humanoid in form in this case is a big advantage. So yeah, I will or, give up the donkey the running so quickly. Yeah, yeah the donkey ears. Yeah. The fish part, yeah, I, I I think I'll go with the muses as well. I okay. think that's that's a good choice. All right, that sounds good. So now we are one to one. Yes, and this brings us to our third category, which is good God, and good God is the character of the deity. Um, and I will go first. And as always with the Olympians, this is a mixed bag, as we say. <laughs> mixed so, bag, mixed bag. Um. You know, their gifts uh, to humans of uh, music and performing arts and learning, you know, those important, good gifts. Huge. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's kind of something, you know, we both know as people who have played some music that feels especially divine about music creation. Absolutely. So, you know, it leads a, a little more uh, reality to that one for me. Yes. Um, you know, they help out a lowly shepherd, uh, become a, Big time poet mm-hmm. uh, and singer. That, that's a that's a big one. Of course, Rags they, to riches they, story. Yep. While they do it, they they felt the need to insult the shepherding profession. <laughs> well, you know, as is the style in sort of a <laughs> yeah. hip hop battle. You know, you got to start yeah, so, uh, the shade. Yes, yeah, stir things up. Um, so, you know, we as a podcast don't don't endorse that. For, no, for, certainly not. Nothing but full respect to the shepherding yeah. profession. But you know, um, you know, they had that jealous and wrathful streak. You know, plucking the feather out of your own daughter's or niece's wings, that's a little harsh. Yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, on the good side, you know, one story I didn't share that they they grew along up alongside their their nanny's son, and then when he's died dies, they have him turned into a constellation. So, all right, yeah. well that's nice. You know, it's a good a good parting gift. Yeah, yeah. Like, we became buddies with him and and yeah. uh, made him a made him a constellation. So, all right. So what do you what do you have on? Well, we don't have a lot of stories about Pan doing a lot of good. Per se, but he's less bad than some of the other characters that we're reckoning with in the <laughs> program. So, like he right. he doesn't do a lot of killing directly, but of course he just has his followers do it, uh, or he just incites panic and allows the victims to kind of take care of themselves. So that's <laughs> yeah, a, that's a, kind of falls on both sides. He's not actively causing demise, but he's at least facilitating that process. Um, you know, the one good thing he helped people with was helping those shepherds figure out how to, you know, get less lonely when they're out there with the sheep. I guess that's a nice gesture, but uh, right. not, uh, you know, only one market character. Um, I would say his erotic escapades sort of push the boundaries a bit. I mean, there's the, yeah. the sort of lechery about it. You know, all the stories that we hear, he really doesn't get to the finish line. But he, he's, as I said, in art, he's represented as, as having a lot much better luck. There is a famous work of art. And again, this is the part of the program where I will have to mention something that I don't want you to Google, but if you <laughs> must, uh, you have that right. It's a statue from the Villa of the Papyri, uh, which is located at the Herculaneum in the in the uh, in Italy, and it's a statue of Pan, let's say, making love with a goat. Um, now you Google it, you realize this is there's an intimacy to this. It's it's really it's explicit. He's looking the goat in the eye. It it, it looks very it's very. <laughs> It's a lot more direct and close than you expect. Um, then again, you know, a great area because he is half goat. So <laughs> right. it's sort of semi bestiality, but not entirely. It, so he right. walks the line in that one. But there's yeah. uh, certainly a, yeah, certainly some some question marks about uh, the character aspect of his erotic <laughs> adventures. Right. Um, so hard to tell. You know, he's such a laid back guy, such just sort of a man of the outdoors. Not a whole lot of force for good but not a lot of blatant evil either. Kind of rides somewhere in the middle. Right. Which is interesting because sometimes uh, when we say mixed bag, it's because they're uh, <laughs> very, very good and very, very evil. Yes. I say Apollo uh, ha right. has that aspect. But, right. you know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean to the, the muses again on this one, the force for uh, creation of music and, and art. Uh, you know, maybe can look look a... Uh, overlook the the nasty feathering so yes i think that's a that i agree with you and and the that's a contribution that outweighs you know the creation of the pan pipes and, right, yeah. and happy shepherds you know <laughs> i agree right. i share your vote I, I think i went to that pub once <laughs> all right. anyway all right so this brings us to so that is two to one two to one for the muses and it brings us to fourth round iconography Yes. And this is legacy of the deity, uh, both in their own time and now. And uh, I believe you have the first one on this. Yes. So Pan, of course, is considered a minor god, um, not at the sort of same level as, as our Olympians or, 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 or the, some of those great figures, but still has a great deal of kind of cultural prominence all these years later. We've talked about the prodigious branding. We've talked about the panic to the pan flute. But because of that connection between the Greek word for Pan and the word, you know, the Greek word for all and Pan, he is forever associated with with sort of everything from pansexuals, to pandemonium, Pan American Airlines to, <laughs> yes, even pandemics. So, you know, you take the good, you take the bad, right. taking both, you, you get your Pan. Um, 
after the, the incident with Typhon, after creating in the incarnation of A.G. Pan, Zeus did reward him uh, by placing Pan among the stars as the constellation Capricorn. So he does have his, his place in astronomy there as well, uh, the A.G. Pan version of Pan. Uh, right. Capricorn is also happens to be my astrological sign, uh, I'm told, but I have, I have no time for such made up things. I am only interested <laughs> in the hard facts that we cover yeah. on God versus yes. God. So well, go. leave that to the side. Um, probably the biggest sort of cultural uh, association, Pan was a big influence on the character of Peter Pan, who, of course, okay. also represents the natural world outside of the influence of adults. So he is, like Pan, both charming and selfish. Um, I think the intention of that character was to ask the question, are human instincts good? Are the most uncivilized instincts bad? Or is there a gray area there? So right. uh, Pan, Peter Pan's creator, J.M. Barry used to use the term a betwixt in between to describe Peter Pan. So sort of part animal, part human, very similar to, to our dear Pan. Yeah. And his stories, you know, they explore a lot of that psychology. So which is better to be refined or to be a little bit more rough around the edges. Um, so there is, there's a nice sort of heft to that. And that continues to this day. Pan also has a place in the occult. So Aleister Crowley and some of his compadres in, in those sort mm -hmm. of early Satanist days, yeah. um, you know, and it, he's kind of already dressed for the part. He's got right. the cloven feet. He's got the horns. So those early Christians sort of said, this guy, you know, if we, we need a, a stock character to play the devil, right. we got him right here. So Pan sort of became a an unwilling participant in Satanism um, in eras okay. beyond his yeah. own because he just sort of looked the part he had. He was he was the central casting version yeah. of the devil. Uh, and the Satanists got on board with that. So, you know, he, he also had some some dark followers later on. Um, I know all the progressive rock fans out there are thinking, Matt, how have you waited so long to ask the question? Wasn't Pan's unrequited crush the inspiration for the Temples of Syrinx movement of the song 2112 from the Rush album 2112? <laughs> yes, it absolutely was. I would put that on the playlist for this week's episode but of course being a prog rock song it's at least 20 minutes <laughs> overtake the whole thing so right. i'll show some restraint and you're asking isn't there's no the radio first... edit there's no radio edit it is one movement of the song those songs okay. had multiple movements so yeah. that was the uh the temples of syrinx you're also asking isn't the first pink floyd album piper at the gates of dawn a reference to pan drawn from his appearance of course in kenneth graham's classic novel the wind in the willows well yes again you are you are correct. So there are cultural sprinklings all throughout. Peter Pan, probably the most uh, the most prominent of them. In terms of names, you don't really hear a lot in, in our culture of people naming their children after Pan. However, it is a big prominent name in China, Vietnam, and South Korea, which has nothing to do with a guy. <laughs> no. Happens to be the same word in various forms in those languages. Right, yeah. So uh, uh, he has a syllable. A, yes. So it has as a... As a minor god, I think his cultural tendrils are pretty well established across the board. You don't get the aircraft carriers, the weapons named after. You know, you don't no. get that sort of classic slate of, of Olympian uh, namesakes. But, but he's in there. He shows up. Okay. All right. No, that's that's interesting. Yeah. That's, I you know I probably should have made that connection with Peter Pan, but I never really thought about it. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's in there. There you go. All right. Um, so. First off, there's kind of a lot, a lot of language uh, contributions from the yeah. muses. Uh, as I mentioned, museums, but we also have music mm -hmm. is sure. named <laughs> literally right there for, for the muses. Amusing uh, is mm. um, to muse is yep. uh, you know to contemplate something, to think think about something. So you know, in terms of branding, they they also have have some some successes there. Sure. Um, 
Then there's, you know, kind of some of the more random things that I like to, you know, find just to get the breadth yep. uh, of of their influence. <laughs> um, so there is Muse's Escape, which is a collective designed to empower the aesthetic of femininity in all its forms. Oh. And uh, by collective, I believe they mean the collective of your money. <laughs> but uh, it's not, not inexpensive, but, but people do, do swear, swear by it. It's kind of right. a, a retreat uh, for artistic women, um, and they have them all, all over uh, the U.S. And, huh. and, and Europe. I did not know that. Uh, there, uh, there's a whole brand of Muse's tarot cards, which is mm-hmm. a special edition of tarot cards. Oh, sure. you're <laughs> naturally. <Yeah. laughs> like, all right. So um, there is a brand of Muse's only yoga wear. Mm. And then, of course, we get when we get into music, uh, there is the band Muse. Uh, oh, yeah. Rock band. Yes. Uh, Very good. Uh, uh, current current day. There's yep. uh, from the 90s, you may recall Throwing Muses, which was Throw, kind yep. Of, yep. Uh, an alt rock band. And there, in the uh, teens, there was a K-pop band called Nine Muses, which was a girl group singing of uh nine nine singers uh okay. who were active from 2010 to 2019 so uh even keeping the number nine like really committing to the to yeah the yeah they, they found out they, they uh, maybe eight of them can sing and, and one of them was really good at astronomy <laughs> so they, I, I i i don't know that one for a fact but, but uh, uh they kept that but, but you know uh back into uh popular culture you may remember uh the film xanadu of course. Which was the nineteen eighty Newton John, yeah. Nineteen eighty film cast Olivia Newton John as yes. the muse uh Tripsichore, uh who for some reason encourages a down and out f- photographer to open roller disco. <laughs> yes. And so, that is the that's that's the plot of the movie. Uh, I, I, I believe uh, Calliope is, is a bad muse in that for some reason. So <laughs> And, but you may not have known that that was an adaptation of the 1947 film Down to Earth. I sure starred, did not know that. Which starred Rita Hayworth wow. as Terpsichore, who uh, comes down to help a writer of a um, Broadway musical. Okay. Naturally. So, uh, now, then we get into the individual music. I'm not going to go through them all, but uh, Calliope is actually a fairly common name, and it is in the top 500 of girls' names. Okay, sure. In, in this country. Um, then there, there's the Calliope steam engine. I don't know if you know what these are. Mm. Like in, uh, it is a pipe, steam pipe. And and so in those circus pipes, or they'll have them in a uh, wagon, and they go around and playing the same same music. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, So, so that, that, is, that, is a, uh, that is called a Calliope. Um, there's a brand of oversized recliners called the Calliope. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how that came about, which is, it's somewhere between a chair and a love seat. Yeah. So, yeah. But, uh, uh, that, that comes up. There's a Calliope hummingbird, which is the smallest bird in North America. Wow. And, uh, then of course in theater, uh, you have that sad and happy masks, yes. uh, which are known as, uh, the, Melipomene and Tulia masks, respectively. So mm-hmm. they're they're actually named uh, for for the goddesses. Um, and then of course Cleo, uh, the muse of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are Cleo Greek yogurt bars. 
Yes, I think I've had one of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there's there that you also probably be familiar with the Clio Award. I certainly would. Yes, in, in for, advertising. For advertising. Yeah. Yes, um, and there's legal software named Clio. So, um, and then last not but least, bring it back to the whole muses. There's the crew of muses, which is a float crew that participates in the art annual Mardi Gras festival in New Orleans. Uh, that celebrates the victory of the muses over the sirens. Excellent. To this day. Glad that they're still rehashing that battle for all <laughs> <Yes>. to enjoy. <laughs> yes. And and that and that's what I have on them. So. That's pretty good. Well, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Xanadu. A very good friend of mine has a, has a young daughter who's like four or five, and it is her favorite movie. <laughs> so he insists, she insists on showing, screening it day after day. And he, I've just seen clips. It is utterly unwatchable. It's, <laughs> it's awful. So I, I really I give him great great marks on this parenting for enduring that. Well, but but somebody had to introduce her to it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> so, <laughs> some, so somebody's getting down marks as well. That's right. That's right. <laughs> maybe maybe a grandparent. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. No, that this is an interesting. An yeah, interesting it's a close battle. one. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know the language thing is kind of kind of interesting, but. Um, you know, Pan has more than more than I was more than I was expecting uh, yeah. here, and uh, you know, I don't know if how much of a down mark we're gonna give him for Xanadu, <laughs> which is is really kind of disrespectful to to the muses, given that <laughs> is their area of expertise. Yeah, that's this right. Is, this so, is what yeah, you come out with. Everybody falls down on the job every now and then. So. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, I, I can only imagine what what would happen to that director. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm going to go with Pan on this one. I think so too. I think the yes, the the influence in the language. You know, there's a nice spread of all the muses and their various sort of uh, cultural tendrils. But I think uh, Peter Pan's a, a beloved character. I think we 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 use Pan words every day, whether we know them or not. And even if we're not uh, pr- proficient in the Pan flute, we certainly are <laughs> always on the verge of panic among yes. pandemics. So yes. there is that. So I agree. I think I will give Pan the edge in this one as well. All right. And so that means we are, I believe, tied up two to two going yes. into the matinee idol. So once again, we're going to decide who gets the golden apple. Yes. Based on the airtight <laughs> criteria of who would make yes. the better movie yes. or limited series. So, All right. And this is mine to start. So again, a little bit of pressure here. Yeah, uh, proposing a movie about uh, the goddesses of performing arts, <laughs> right? So, I mean, either that or it's it's just a guaranteed success because they're in the pocket. <laughs> yeah, so so as tempted as I was just to to recount the storyline of the nineteen eighty hit musical movie Xanadu, <laughs> later revived on Broadway in two thousand seven because really, yes, people could not get enough. <laughs> wow, with actual roller skates, I hope. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So well, I I had. Se- uh, sit through Starlight Express. Oh yeah, in, in London, which did have Axel yeah, roller well, skates. But that was Andrew Lloyd Webber, right? I mean, that's 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 classy yes. stuff. <laughs> it's, it's something. It is something. <laughs> um, so back back to this. So you know, again, even more than our episode, my episode eight entry for Rock Me Aristeus. This did feel like this needs to be a musical. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, now we have nine muses to cover, uh, so. It's got to be a limited series. I'm thinking sure. we're going to go 
12 episodes. We've got kind mm-hmm. of an ensemble cast. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, split the setting between Mount Helicon and, and the modern world. And then, you know, start on Mount Helicon with all nine muses gathering for a festival along with their brother, companion, <laughs> uh, Apollo. Yes. A little exposition dialogue, get us started uh, on between the sisters and what they're doing now. And then we get a big opening number uh, with, you know, the whole whole group. And, you know, in many ways, this is actually kind of creatively an ideal time for the muses. Uh, mm. Tip you know, is helping kids uh, shoot TikTok dances. Yep. They got, uh, and Broadway and, and music videos as well. Uh, Mel Pimene and... Tulia are, are nonstop with their streaming content. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's going full board. Yep. Uh, Urania is uh, working with NASA on space imagery. Uh, Euterpe and Polyhymnia are working with all genres of music and Spotify. Sure. Uh, you know, Rada, of course, is churning out uh, romance books and her whole favorite subgenre of Hades romances. <laughs> yes. Of yes. Course. Classic. Uh, and then there's Cleo, who's working mostly in Britain, uh, you know, on costume dramas and history documentation, uh, documentaries. Um, and then things turn a little bit darker as Melopomene's daughters challenge them to a singing contest. Sure. Uh, you know, manipulated, of course, by Hera. And that plays out uh, with the defeathering and the assault. And then afterwards, Calliope is kind of guilty. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in this version, she's, she feels bad. Uh, Understandable, yeah. A- ancient Greece, maybe not so much, but this is a no. modern version. Right. She's a little bit des- uh, devastated, so you know, get a sad musical number after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and she looks around, and, you know, she sees people enjoying content, but then scrolling into kind of the, the terrible things going on in the world. So sure. it, it's, you know, they're escaping with all the great content the muses are helping to put out, but the state of the world's not great. Yes. And she wonders if the muses are doing enough. And and maybe, you know, they should be inspiring some truly great works. Hmm. And she does a big solo kind of inspirational uh, let it go kind of number. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, she sees that work that Cleo is doing, uh, inspiring some uh, British podcasters to make humorous podcasts uh, relating, say, English monarchs <laughs> yes. or uh, podcasts rating Roman emperors. Uh, and since thinks this is what you know this is really she's impressed she thinks this is what i should be doing yes she's both educating and entertaining people yes and so she you know calliope gives some inspiration to you know, sort of modern day lowly shepherds of office mm. workers who are <laughs> work working on, on their spreadsheets and presentations yeah uh you know kind of remembering what she did with hesiod and so she she inspires these guys to start their own podcast hmm. uh, to stage contest of the gods, pitting them head to head. Oh my in goodness! Order for the winning candidate to have <laughs> the ultimate comeback <laughs> and save the world. Of course, casting Bradley Cooper <laughs> and Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> the origin story we've all been waiting for and perfectly cast. Although I I can't even tell who would play who in that. It could go either yeah. way. You can go either way, yeah. So, montage of the podcast episodes uh, being cut, you know, <laughs> between the podcasters and their voiceovers and animated react 
reenactments <laughs> of their stories, all set to song. Wow. Uh, finally, leading up to Calliope, realizing that the listener numbers just aren't going up fast <laughs> enough. Right. To save the world. So instead, what she does is she turns into her goddess form and personally pitches this muse-based limited series to Netflix. And the very series these people are watching is oh this. God. It ends with a plug <laughs> to listen, like, and review God versus God as we head into the season finale. I, You know, I thought the invocation of the muse was as meta as you were going to get. I was not prepared for all no. those levels of the onion. Very well done. Very nice. Mind blown. <laughs> That's a, well, that is a tough act to follow. All right. Let me, let me see what I can do. Uh, <clears throat> so you thinking about this, Andrew, I, I kind of recognize the a movie or series about Pan directly. We may not play well with audiences today, <laughs> given all the, the, the ribaldry, um, the flute playing, the, the prominent phalluses, just even for cable, it just, it seems a bit, a bit dicey. So right. I had to get a little creative for this category and, I don't know about you, but I these days I cannot hear the term "goat" without thinking, of course, the of the acronym version for "greatest of all time." Right? right. We, hear, we hear this discussed a lot. I'm sure you've heard it quite a bit in the terms of the world of sports. Yep. There's always a, a lively debate in the world about you know who's who's the best of all time, who's the greatest of the great. You hear it applied to maybe Tiger Woods, Muhammad Ali. It's a designation reserved only for the best of the best. Now, of course, it goes beyond sports. You can go to the arts and, and various other places too. Every profession theoretically has a goat. A greatest of all time. Yep. So it got me thinking about what it would mean to have half a goat in that context. And so this led me to a category I don't think we've explored before in this category, which is the game show. And not just a game show, but a fantasy game show okay. called Simply Half Goat with G-O-A-N-T, all in capital letters. All right. And the game show goes like this. Contestants vie for the opportunity to take on half of the body of one of the true goats, the greatest of all time. But because it's a game show, there are two catches. First of all, you only get to be half of the famous figure. So the rest is you. So you may be half one of the greats, but the rest is the body you come with as the contestant. The second catch is that you can't decide which half you get. <laughs> so there's a panel that's assembled of, of the fates, which made made sense. They get the mortar yeah. in there and, sure. and, and, and determine. Based on the quality of the life that you've led before becoming a contestant. So your host to the program, of course, is the the greatest of all half goats, the goat <laughs> of goats, if you will, Pan himself. He's leading the proceedings with his randy sense of humor and the occasional flute interlude. So each episode, we have a regular Joe contestant, to, and we follow him in his quest to become half goat. Now, maybe you've got a contestant who's lived a noble and virtuous life, who's done really well. Maybe he gets to, say, take the top half of chess legend Bobby Fischer. So yeah, I mean, still you've got your skinny little legs, but because up top you've got the ingenious mind, you still beat Spassky for the title in Reykjavik, you still become great. So even half of a goat is still a success story. Right. Um, maybe another good noble person would draw the top half of, say, Paul McCartney. So yeah, you've got bad knees, no problem. You still ultimately become universally beloved. Above the waist, you write 22 number one songs, you still become successful. Uh, when you get lesser humans as contestants, though, who've not lived as noble of a life, this is where things get complicated. So uh -huh. maybe you've got a contestant of lower character. Maybe he's assigned the bottom half of Tom Brady. <laughs> now, on one hand, think about it. You can 
you've got the bottom half. You can really scramble in the pocket really well, but <laughs> the regular self on top, you can barely throw a spiral. Right. No idea how to read a defense. And so you would not, you would not fare well against no. an NFL defense. Then again, you do to experience what it's like for below the belt Brady to come home to Giselle every night. So it's not entirely bad. No. Another lower tier contestant might get, let's say the bottom half of Michael Jordan. Now, again, you got great legs. You really move on the court. You got a killer vertical jump, but up top, you know, you're still yourself. So your regular <laughs> Joe kind of fadeaway jumper is not going to cut it in the NBA. So no. on the plus side though, you don't have Jordan's mind. So you're not, you're spared the curse of being this inexplicably miserable billionaire who's reached the top <laughs> of this crap. So you at least have the mental well being of not having to share that brain. So each episode, we watch a regular person just like us struggle through the burden of being only half great. But let's face it, that's 50% closer than most of us ever get. So look for Half Goat streaming soon on Pan TV Plus. <laughs> <laughs> and did not expect that <laughs> it's, it's kind of out there that's yeah that's the best i could do <laughs> uh yeah so what do you think there's uh this it does come down to this yeah it does it does come down to this um <laughs> you know i i you know i think i don't know how much of the core of the pan story is in them <laughs> <laughs> Look, he's the host it's got a half goat it's all in there <laughs> Yeah, it's so. inspired by, you know, it's it is a, inspired by it is, you know, a little more loosely inspired by, um, but uh, you know, in this one, I'm, I'm going to, uh, going to go with the muses. I think that, that the mission <laughs> yes. of that Netflix series is so important. Uh, the mission of getting us more lis- listeners as well as saving the world. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. I, I will, I will cast my vote for the muses as well for two yeah. reasons. Number one, uh, the, certainly the, the higher degree of fidelity between, the goddesses themselves in the program given against the loose interpretation that I provided, but also just the ability to execute. Um, You'd really have to have some serious special effects to make this pants show happen. (laughs) Right. Unbelievable. It's very high concept. Did you cast that? I did not cast it. Although I did (laughs) in the cutting room floor, I had the ending was this tournament of champions where um, when all the, the regular people turn that are half goats flame out, you end up having the goats, take on halves of, of each other. So you like have <laughs> like the bottom half of LeBron James and the top half of Michael Jackson. It gets really bizarre from there. So I just, I left that one out. That was too much. So no casting, just regular people, just regular okay. folks. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I, yeah, I, th- I think I'm, I'm going to go with the music. And did you j- join me in that? Or you? I did join okay. you in that. Yeah. I think the all music right, so get the nod. And for the, the extra special bonus of all the, all the meta levels of that concept, uh, right. I have to, I have well, to and the it. casting was just, Spot I mean, on. it would, yeah, that would be, it would be a guaranteed hit. No question. <laughs> right. So <laughs> excellent. All right. So that means that we have uh, the muses winning the golden apple for this round. See yes. Episode 11, uh, three to two. All right. And we are Indeed. now heading into our final, what I would call our final regular season episode. That is correct. Episode yes. 12. So. And we've got we've been through so many of the heavy hitters. Episode twelve, we realized we've had two two heavy hitters who have been part of this story all throughout, but have not had their own dedicated episode. And so you know what that means. Normally we go to the fates here, but there right. are two left standing uh, in competition for the regular season. So next episode will be none other than Zeus and Hera right. going at it. Now that is that is an action packed all star battle yeah. to close the regular heavy season. Hitters. 
We'll see how that one pans out. And then at that point, we will make plans for a two-part season finale where all the winners will have, we have very specific ways of matching them up. It will be intriguing. It will be high pressure. Yeah. We will not want to miss it. It will be so action-packed. It will be split over two episodes just to give you some time in between to really think about what you're observing. So <laughs> get okay. ready for that. In the meantime, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this one. Uh, yeah. As always, uh, thank you to Andy Snow for our, for our music. Right. Um, you know where to find this. You know what, you, what we want you to do. That last story gave you all the tips you need. <laughs> yes. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, give that right. review. Uh, and a final thank you to the folks at Battle Royale right. for, uh, for swapping out with us, letting you yeah. uh, hear from them and hope you enjoy their show as well. And if you're a uh, listener who's come from their side, welcome. We're glad right. to have you, and uh, we appreciate your listening. Yeah, so. and I do want to say to, to yeah, give give them a listen. Uh, yeah, Ben and Eliza do do a great job, very entertaining. And and, and I and I would say that Ben does a, a great job with the history, but then I realized that I don't actually know enough about the history of France <laughs> to, to, vouch, for, to vouch for that. I do know that France is a real country. Yeah, I've been I've that. been there. That must be convincing enough. That's good. Yes. Enough for me. <laughs> he, he's very convincing. So uh, uh, he sells it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Excellent. Well, go check that out and get ready for uh, the, the regular season finale next episode. And until then, Andrew, always a pleasure. Excellent yeah. job. And everybody, thanks for listening. We'll, we'll see you next time. So All right. Bye bye.